The term power lunch was born in 1979. At restaurants like the Four Seasons, VIPs and CEOs would sit at tables spaced far apart, taking long, boozy lunches, while less powerful workers hurried to scarf a sandwich from a street vendor. It, in the time-is-money rat race of New York City, being able to sit down for a meal midday became a status symbol. Uh, one of the magazines, I believe it was Esquire magazine, wrote a story about it, and they put on the front of the magazine the, the term, power lunch. That's where that came from. There's a boozy power lunch in Genesis 43. After debate and delay, Joseph's brothers returned to Egypt, hoping to get some life-saving grain and retrieve their imprisoned brother Simeon at the same time. The problem is no one in the family really wants to make the trip. The brothers are rightfully afraid they might be jailed as spies and thieves. Jacob, the dad, he's afraid that Benjamin won't come home at all. Meanwhile, as readers, we know what's really going on. We see that God's incredible particular providence has unfolded so that it can give this family salvation and safety and shelter and harmony. As the family of faith hesitates, we want to shout into the pages, just go. It's going to be fine. That's where you need to be. But the drama of these years wasn't really about grain. It wasn't about harvests or rainfall. It was about hearts. This was the family through which God was going to bring the deliverer. This was the family that God had called out from all the others on the earth to know him in a special way, follow him in a special way, represent him in a special way so that all the people on the earth might be blessed. But we have to come to the conclusion from these passages we've been reading, they were pretty far off track. I mean, compared to Noah in his ark or Abraham on Mount Moriah, uh, their faith looks pretty shriveled up. But the Lord was drawing them back to themselves. He wasn't going to write them off. He wasn't done with them. These were the ones. He put Joseph in position to show the family of faith who the God of their fathers really was, what he was really capable of, and how he was still in love with this family and still intended on keeping his promises to them. So let's begin in verse 1. Now the famine in the land was severe. When they had used up the grain they had brought back from Egypt, their father said to them, go back and buy us a little food. Things were very bad, not only in Egypt, but also in Canaan and the surrounding regions. The rains didn't fall, the winds didn't blow, the harvest didn't come in. Nine of Jacob's sons had made it back from their first trip to Egypt with the grain they needed to survive for a while, but this problem wasn't going away. In fact, it was only getting worse. Now, Jacob is pretty old at this point, around 130 years old, and he seems to be slipping a little bit, if we can be honest, or at least he's becoming less effective as the leader of this important family. In the last chapter, we saw that he was the one who had lit the fire of urgency under his sons about going to get food. He says, hey, don't just look at each other. We got a problem here. We need to solve this. He saw the danger of the famine. He was thinking about the things that were going on. Now in chapter 43, we see a, a different Jacob, a duller Jacob, a much more hesitant Jacob. 
Because he's so hesitant to do what must be done, he's become out of touch with their situation. Go buy a little food, he says. Uh, That's not the problem. And notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, go and rescue your brother Simeon, who is living as a prisoner in Egypt. Uh, As we saw last time, Simeon has just been written off by his dad. Ah, Simeon's dead too. And they're like, no, 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 maybe you misheard us. He's not dead. He's in prison and we can go get him. Oh, Simeon, he's gone, you know. So Jacob, he's slipping. John Golden Gay suggests that maybe Jacob thinks they could just kind of go covert down to Egypt, sneak down there, grab a little grain from one of the storehouses without being noticed, and that way they wouldn't have to deal with this whole Benjamin-Simeon situation that he, Jacob, did not want to deal with at all. This is not great leadership, and it would not solve their problem. In fact, it would only postpone for a very short time the impending uh, starvation of the whole family. Verse 3 says, Judah said to him, the man specifically warned us, you will not see me again unless your brother, Benjamin, is with you. If you send our brother with us, we will go down and buy food for you. But if you will not send him, we will not go. For the man said to us, you will not see me again unless your brother is with you. So Judah emerges here as the next leader of the family of faith. Now, he's the fourth born, and so this is out of order in, in tr- a traditional sense. But as we've seen over the last months, Reuben, Reuben Simeon, and Levi, the first three uh, sons of Jacob, they didn't make the cut. They were all disqualified for one reason or another. You know, I think there might be the smallest whisper of Christ foreshadowed here. Of course, Christ is a descendant of Judah, the lion of the tribe of Judah. But I was thinking when we think of Israel, the the overall history of Israel, um, there, there are sort of, there are a lot of great heroes, a lot of great leaders, but in a sense, there are three great men that absolutely stand in a class by themselves, Abraham, Moses, David, right? And there are a bunch of other really super important uh, individuals and leaders and things, but uh, the big king, David, you know, uh, the big leader, Moses, the big granddaddy of them all, Abraham, they, they were these big three guys, and yet they're eclipsed by Christ Jesus, by, by Judah's descendants who come, comes to be the ultimate, the final, the greatest leader and uh, savior of them all. When Judah spoke to his father Jacob, he was very straightforward. Uh, he doesn't devolve into angry emotionalism like his older brother Reuben had in the last passage. He also doesn't allow Jacob to spin the situation or try to sidestep the problem. Remember, Jacob at his human core is the schemer. You know, the Lord's working in his life, but he's the schemer. And Jacob just doesn't allow him to play any games. Well, maybe you just could go buy a little bit of food and and you fly under the radar. He, He says, yeah, no, that's not what's going on. And we see that Judah as an individual has grown quite a bit compared to who he used to be. This is not a good guy uh, a few chapters ago, not the kind of guy you wanted in your family, not the kind of guy you wanted your daughter to bring home, uh, you know, for the holidays, not the kind of guy that you would trust, uh, you know, back in chapters 38 and, and earlier, but he's growing. We see here that not only is he taking a wise leadership position, he's also willing to obey what this prince of Egypt, Joseph, had told them, despite what the consequences might be for him personally. Going back to Egypt, he says, listen, we'll go back to Egypt, but if we're going to go back, we're going to go back according to what the prime minister of Egypt has, has commanded. But we need to be very clear, 
for these guys, these individuals to go back to Egypt with the silver that was supposed to be left in Egypt, but they still had it, it could mean imprisonment or enslavement or even execution for them. And we see that he is willing to face that music if need be. Verse 6 says, Jacob speaking, why have you caused me so much trouble, Israel asked? Why did you tell the man you had another brother? Jacob's selfishness is stopping him from doing what is right. In his heart, he knows what needs to be done. He just keeps stalling as lives hang in the balance. And this, is, this is not a game that anyone wants to play. We're talking about people dying. We're talking about the end of the family of faith if they don't get some food. Jacob's big worry is how he'll feel if Benjamin doesn't come back from Egypt. That's an important sort of distinction to make as we looked at the last passage and this one too. It's not even that much about if something bad happens to Benjamin. It's about how he'll feel if something bad happens to Benjamin. Meanwhile, Simeon hasn't come back from Egypt and all the people of his family are flirting with starvation unless these brothers return to Egypt and do exactly what Joseph commanded. Verse 7 says, they answered, the man kept asking us about our family. Is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? And we answered him accordingly. How could we know that he would say, bring your brother here? Then Judah said to his father, Israel, send the boy with me. We will be on our way so that we may live and not die. Neither we, nor you, nor our dependents. I will be responsible for him. You can hold me personally accountable. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, I will be guilty before you forever. If we had not delayed, we could have come back twice by now. Every day they waited made the situation more dangerous. Jacob is still the clan boss, but Judah steps into family leadership here. He even used the same phrase that Jacob had used in the last chapter, so that we may live and not die. And so there's this interesting uh, sort of passing of the torch from Jacob to Judah. In the last passage, the brothers are just looking around. They don't know what to do. He says, hey, so that we may live and not die, here's what we need to do. Now Jacob is in that sort of paralyzed, looking around, not knowing how to decide, not knowing what to do. And Judah takes up that, that servant leadership. Judah speaks respectfully, responsibly, and resolutely. He shows that he is concerned for the whole family, not just himself. He puts himself on the line for all of them. His remarks to his dad constitute a legally binding vow, scholars tell us. Unlike Reuben, who you may recall from the last passage, cowardly used his own sons as a human shield for himself and his plan, Judah literally says, I will become surety for Benjamin. We see a spark of spirituality as the brothers rally behind Judah there in verse 7 as they speak together uh, to their father, defending Judah for the plan. Their hearts were softening as the Lord drew these men on with grace and kindness. It's demonstrated most powerfully and most dramatically in Judah himself. I mean, we remember the scandal of Genesis 38. We remember the earlier behavior. We remember that it was Judah 
who concocted the plan all along to sell Joseph into slavery more than 20 years before this text. It was his idea. It was his cruelty. It was his wickedness. And yet now we see that things have happened. Things have changed. The Lord humbled him in chapter 38, and and we don't get everything about his life, but clearly the Lord is working in his heart, turning him into a servant, turning him into a sacrificial redeemer, and he has become a rescuer now. And this is what the Lord can do in a life. Think of John Newton. Uh, He worked in the slave trade until he was born again by Jesus Christ, and he joined William Wilberforce's abolitionist movement. And then he penned the most famous song in human history, Amazing Grace, that God would save a wretch like me, he wrote. And how many of us have sung that song so many times? God's grace and God's truth and God's power can convert an individual like John Newton, can convert Judah or Saul of Tarsus or you or me. Uh, God can, can, can convert any wicked person, and that should give us a lot of hope. If God can change the, the life of Nebuchadnezzar, the worst, most wicked tyrant on planet Earth at his time, and yet he ends his, the, you know, his career in Scripture, his life, praising God, writing a gospel tract for the God of heaven. Man, the Lord can save anyone. Verse 11 says, Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Put some of the best products of the land in your packs. Take them down to the man as a gift, a little balsam and a little honey, aromatic gum, I love that one, and resin, pistachios and almonds. Take twice as much silver with you. Return the silver that was returned to you in the top of your bags. Perhaps it was a mistake. Take your brother also and go back at once to the man. May God Almighty cause the man to be merciful to you so that he will release your other brother and Benjamin to you. As for me, if I'm deprived of my sons, then I am deprived. So Jacob, he is a, a, a great example of a real-life person, right? It's so hard for us to remember that these characters in the Bible were real people like you and me. And none of us are perfect uh, by any stretch of the imagination. All of us have um, strengths and shortcomings, right? I think we sometimes expect too high a standard of characters in the Bible and too low a standard for ourselves, right? Jacob's a real person that had real struggles. He knew a lot less about God than we did. He had a lot less revelation than we did. He did not have the indwelling Holy Spirit. And so, you know, as we've studied his story, there's a lot of shortcoming to point out this passage is no exception. On the other hand, it's clear that the Lord was using him and that the Lord was working in his heart and that the, the Lord had a relationship with this man. So hopefully we're not beating up on these guys too much. That's not the goal. They're real people. And in certain cases, the Lord has uh, um, preserved some of their mistakes for us so that we can learn from them. So we don't want to gloss over anything, but we also want to be Uh, honest and humble when we approach some of these things. So what do we see here? We see both a combination of sort of um, uh, human doubt and human scheming along with a a faith in the Lord, and they're sort of co-mingling a little bit together. On the one hand, Jacob is relying on his wealth, right? Okay, here's what's going to solve this problem, money and stuff. And make sure you bring a lot of money and stuff, and that's going to solve the problem. We saw Previously, that was his plan before. In his problem with Esau, same thing. He thought, you know what's going to solve this problem? Money and stuff. 
And, and one of the things it seems that the Lord wanted to teach Jacob and wants to teach us through Jacob is that money and stuff is not the savior of your problems. Money and stuff can be very helpful and be um, very beneficial and very enjoyable, uh, but money and stuff doesn't solve the problems of your life. And so on the one hand here, he's relying on his wealth once again. On the other hand, he finally brings the Lord into the plan. It has been a long time since Jacob invoked his God on the pages of Genesis. And here he reminds himself and his sons that their God is El Shaddai. That's the name he uses, a God of almighty covenant power and provision. He appeals to God's mercy here and God's ability to intervene even in the highest towers of human government. He knew the stories from his dad and from his grandfather, how God would break into the dreams of Abimelech, of a king or of a pharaoh if he needed to. And so uh, we see this, this remembering and this recalling of, oh yeah, this is who our God is. Still, we sort of miss the, the spiritual confidence that we hope for in our Bible heroes. Jacob comes across more resigned than full of faith, and his words sadly still betray an, an, an imbalance in his heart, right? He calls Benjamin by name, very worried about him. He only calls Simeon your other brother. He doesn't even call him my other son. And so there was this favoritism, this imbalance in his heart uh, that we don't want to infect our own hearts. But we still are seeing a step in the right direction, a step toward the Lord and, and toward the Lord's will in their lives. He calls on the Lord. He appeals to his mercy. He believes that God is in charge of the situation. Those are all very good things. Now, as readers, again, we know just how much God's power and mercy have already accomplished on behalf of these people. They're sitting around so upset, so afraid. They hesitate and they delay and they debate and they're wringing their hands. And the Lord, meanwhile, we know, has turned the trajectory of the world's greatest empire on a dime for them. They don't know that, but the Lord brought all of this stuff together over decades of time so that like that, Joseph could be installed as the prime minister of Egypt. One day he was a prisoner, the next day he was prime minister. Why? Because he wanted to save this family, because he was laying all the groundwork so that they could avoid this famine, so that they could be brought down into safety and security, so that he could do this incredible thing for this family. He's doing all of this stuff. The tension in this story is not whether God will save. The tension is whether Jacob and his sons are going to miss what God has already done because of hard-heartedness or doubt or bad choices. And so we just, we, we have to realize that, yeah, and, and now we jump to our own lives and the Lord works in your life too. The Lord is accomplishing his good work of sanctification, that which he began in you, he will be faithful to complete, just like we see here. And so it reminds us that, okay, when I'm, you know, in my heart, wringing my hands and doubting and afraid and, and trying worldly schemes to, to solve my problems, we need to say, okay, that's what Jacob was doing. I need to be just filled with the faith that the Lord has given me and just follow after him and trust him. Verse 15 says, the men took this gift, doubled the amount of silver and Benjamin. They immediately went down to Egypt, stood before Pharaoh. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to his steward, take them into my house, slaughter an animal, prepare it, 
they will eat with me at noon. The man did as Joseph had said and brought them to Joseph's house. I don't think we can uh, overestimate what a strange day this would have been. Because remember, thousands of refugees have flooded into Egypt on a continual basis. People are starving everywhere, not just in Egypt, but throughout the whole region, right? And Egypt was giving grain out because of the generosity of Joseph to all of them. And so among thousands of refugees at one of these distribution centers, one of the Egyptian officials suddenly stops everything and says, you 10 guys, you're having lunch with the prime minister today. What? That's weird, right? If you were in a line to, be, to, to receive something like that and you get singled out like this, that's a red flag, okay? <laughs> it's gonna be, gonna be a strange feeling. Now, there's a whole devotional here about this other guy, the steward over Joseph's house. He should get us really excited. If Joseph sort of represents Jesus, the back from the dead redeemer king in this story, then this guy represents us, servants of the Lord, right? There he is serving in Joseph's house, bringing others into feast there, speaking to strangers with kindness and grace, representing his master, doing whatever he's told to do, even if it seems unusual. Of course, Joseph was the greatest steward of all time. For real, imagine being hired to be the steward of that guy's house. What do you want me to do? We want you to be the steward of Joseph's house. Joseph, the like genius steward of Potiphar's house and then the jail and then all of Egypt. You, I, I'm gonna do the steward job for him. Yeah, that's what you're gonna do. Okay, yeah, I don't think I'm gonna be able to live up to that job based off of who my boss is. Well, of course you can't live up to the master, but you get the job anyway. And so this guy's a great little devotional for us about serving the Lord uh, with joy and obedience and generosity towards others. Verse 18, but the men were afraid because they were taken to Joseph's house. They said, we've been brought here because of the silver that was returned in our bags the first time. They intend to overpower us, seize us, make us slaves and take our donkeys. I love that so much. So they approached Joseph's steward and they spoke to him at the doorway of the house. They said, my Lord, we really did come down here the first time only to buy food. When we came to the place where we lodged for the night and opened our bags of grain, each one's silver was at the top of his bag. It was full. Uh, it was the full amount of our silver and we have brought it back with us. We've brought additional silver with us to buy food. We don't know who put the silver in our bags. You know, they didn't say like, widow our wives or orphan our children. They said, take our donkeys. Like, I just, I just love that. It's just such a silly thing to say. So there was an ancient tradition that is called the dangerous banquet, where enemies would be brought in to dine and then the trap would spring. And we actually see that a few times in the Old Testament, right? Um, uh, Jezebel has, a, has a, a banquet like that. Absalom has a similar situation. Uh, there's also uh, the dangerous banquet is found in extra biblical writings and in ancient Egyptian writings too. It was also common knowledge that ranking officials in Egypt maintained private dungeons in their homes. And so the sons of Jacob are shaken in their sandals. They are freaked out. They don't even want to cross the threshold of the house. It's like, man, if you go in there, you don't come out, right? That's like the, whatever the equivalent of the Roach Motel is, is us going in here right now, and we're in so much trouble. 
And again, in, in their fright, we have that silly line, and take our donkeys. Egypt doesn't need your donkeys, man. Like, they've got everything. <laughs> but, but we see that the Lord is stripping away the things that they think they need, the things that they think give them strength. He is neutralizing their wealth and their possessions in this story. He's dismantling their defenses, undoing their schemes because he's bringing them to a heart confrontation where they will have to choose to surrender to grace with nowhere else to run. Verse 23, the steward said, may you be well, don't be afraid. Your God and the God of your father must have put the treasure in your bags. I received your silver. Then he brought Simeon out to them. The steward brought them, uh, brought the men into Joseph's house, gave them water to wash their feet and got feed for their donkeys. The steward response uh, to the frantic Hebrews is shalom. That's what he said to them. Mercy to you. Don't be afraid. He says, yeah, I received your payment. Don't worry about it. And I was thinking about this. We don't know. The text doesn't tell us everything, but Joseph was in charge of everything, but I doubt it would have been okay for even him to just send that grain out with no silver coming in on the books, right? That, that's, that looks bad if he says, well, I just gave that away. I mean, they still had laws. They still had propriety. They still had this idea of right and wrong. I mean, in, in a few chapters, we're going to see that like they're going to take the land from their own people, all the livestock from their own people, all of the everything from the own people of Egypt to get the grain, right? So I doubt he could actually just let it slide that he gave them a bunch of grain and no money came in on the books. And I do wonder, did Joseph himself pay for the grain that he gave his brothers back in chapter 42? He gave them the silver back, but I'm thinking that he probably paid it himself. The steward must have blown the brothers' minds, not only by relieving their fears of imprisonment and enslavement, but by giving them a traditional Hebrew greeting. And then speaking to them, not of Ra, not of Osiris, not of whoever Moon Knight's God is, I forget. <laughs> but he speaks to them of their God and the God of their father. That, that phrase meant something to these guys. How do you know about the God of our father? You see, you have to understand, they're the only family walking around who say, we have a special God, the God of our father, and the God of his father, and the God of his father. We have a special God, right? Now, they knew that he was the one true God, the God who created everything, and they could trace the lineage of their family and their spiritual family from Adam all the way down. But as far as the rest of the world is concerned, they had their own thing. And now suddenly this Egyptian steward is talking to them about the God of your father. That would have been an interesting moment. The feed for the donkeys is a tender touch. Back to the donkeys, everyone, okay? We need to know what happened to the donkeys. Everybody's so worried about this. Nobody cares about the donkey thing? I love it. I'm into it. Maybe the steward who undoubtedly heard them freaking out earlier. These guys, they, they, they openly talk about what they're worried about and what they think in front of uh, Egyptians who can translate what they're saying, right? So they're openly, t- they don't get to go off by themselves. They're being like held where they're at by Egyptian guards and Egyptian officials, right? So, so they're, they say, hey, you guys come with us. You're coming to the prime minister's house. And then they start wigging out. They're gonna take our donkeys, right? And so the... the You know, I think the steward there, he sees what's going on and 
and he maybe, let's speculate a little bit because it leads us to thoughts of God's tender grace. He hears what they're saying. He sees how freaked out they are. If you thought you were about to be impaled on a pole or imprisoned for the rest of your life, you'd be pretty stressed out, right? And so these guys are super stressed out. They're all freaked out. They're talking to him. They're, they're saying all this stuff. And so, I, you know, I can imagine the steward sort of pulling Joseph aside and saying, they're pretty worried about the donkeys. I know we're doing this long con on them and you've got a lot of plan. I'm not questioning you, Joseph. I just, I'm obeying what you want me to do, but they are pretty worried about their donkeys. And then what do we see? They made special care. They made sure to give special attention in that area. They were worried about the donkeys. They said, okay, let's make sure we take care of the donkeys. And, and you know what? It's a reminder of the kind of affectionate care God has for you. The kind of tenderness that he has for you. Those things that are really bothering you that five years from now, you're gonna look back and think, yeah, that wasn't, that wasn't such a, a, a big thing that I should have been that concerned about. That was some donkey that I was so worried about. And the Lord meets us there and he says, you're worried about the donkeys, I'll take care of the donkeys for you. And then we're reminded that, that that's the kind of tenderness that God calls us to as we are now stewards, right? We're stewards for our master. And he says, I'm going to send you out to minister to people. And I want you to minister with that kind of tenderness and that kind of thoughtfulness and that kind of attention to what's going on in people's lives. They're flipping flipping out about the donkeys. They don't need to be, but let's minister to them where they're at. We don't know how much time passed between chapters 42 and 43. Some guys think it was less than a year. Some scholars think it was upward of two years. Whatever it was, it was longer than it needed to be, right? Judah said, hey, we could have been back a bunch of times by now. And so after all this time, here comes Simeon. I wonder if he said, thanks for hurrying back, guys. I've been having just a great time in jail all this time. Uh, Do you guys have like, did you have a breakdown on the way back or what you, maybe you went to the other Egypt instead of coming here? Like that would have been an interesting uh, reunion to be sure. Verse 25, since the men had heard that they were going to eat a meal there, they prepared their gift for Joseph's arrival at noon. When Joseph came home, they brought him the gift that they had carried into the house and they bowed down to the ground before him. Jacob hoped this gift would bring them deliverance, right? Sweeten the deal, push him over. The gift will sort of buy what they needed. And throughout the whole story, as I've said, their wealth is neutralized. This gift is completely ignored. They lugged it there for nothing. It's even out of place. Joseph's servants have already prepared a great feast for them. They don't need sacks of pistachios. These bags of dried goods were unnecessary. It reminds me of that scene, you Office fans, do you remember that old episode where Michael Scott brings a Tupperware of sun-spoiled potato salad to a fancy catered dinner? He like brings it and like sets it down and there's all these silver platters and it's like uh, professionally catered. That's what this reminds me of. It was unnecessary. It was, it was neutralized. It was, they didn't even need to bring it. That which they thought, oh, this will be the thing that really saves our bacon. Uh, it was nothing for them. Verse 27, he asked if they were well, and he said, how's your elderly father that you told me about? Is he still alive? They answered, your servant, our father is well. He's still alive. They knelt low and paid homage to him. When he looked up and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, he asked, is this your youngest brother that you told me about? And then he said, may God be gracious to you, my son. 
Joseph hurried out because he was overcome with emotion for his brother. He was about to weep. He went into an inner room and wept there. And then he washed his face and came out, regaining his composure. He said, serve the meal. Now is a good time to remind us that Benjamin isn't a little boy. I think sometimes it's easy to get like the children's Bible images in our head. Benjamin's not a little boy. He's at least in his mid or late 20s. He's probably older because he has 10 sons at this point. So he's not a little boy. He's not even a teenager. He's a grown man. This would have been a very weird moment to have the head of state come in, suddenly run out. No one knows what's going on. Everybody's just standing there. Even his servants are like, what's up? What are we doing? We having dinner? We, not ha- we having lunch? We not having lunch? What's happening? Are we getting, we getting axes to kill these guys? They don't know what's happening either. Uh, and then he comes back, back after a while, kind of acting strange. And then he's like, all right, let's eat. What was going on with Joseph? Is he just a crybaby or what? <laughs> the words are modernized in English in an unhelpful way. The original Hebrew says something like this. His mercy grew warm. His compassion boiled over. A lot was coming together in Joseph's heart too. Remember, he had only known these brothers his whole life as hateful, violent, and cruel. For his first 17 years, they were the worst of men. They hated him so much, so much, so much. They didn't speak one kind word to him. They couldn't look at him. They didn't own him as a brother. They hated him. The last time they had had a meal together as a group was while they were eating while Joseph was lying crying and bleeding and naked in a cistern. It says the other brothers sat down and had a meal together while he was crying out for help. That was the last time they ate together. But now he's seen something different. Could it be that a happy ending might really happen for this family? Verse 32, they served him by himself, his brothers by themselves, and the Egyptians who were eating with him by themselves, because Egyptians could not eat with Hebrews since that is detestable to them. Another strange moment The brothers might have whispered to each other, wait, we get why we're not eating with the Egyptians, but is this prime minister dude also not Egyptian? Like a lot of weird things are happening here. This detesting separation reminds us that the unbelieving world will never truly accept God's people no matter what. Think about it. Joseph had saved their entire nation. They were alive because God provided this man for them. And yet this was the best they could do. Yes, you're our savior. Yes, you're in charge of everything in our country. Yes, you have this position and power and wealth, but our culture says you're gross. And we don't really want to have uh, any closeness with you. And it's exactly this kind of prejudicial, arbitrary barrier that is demolished in the family of faith, in the church, particularly in the church where God has said, I have broken down every wall that separates people from one another, and he brings us together to feast in unity. This separation also gives insight into why God may have wanted the family in Egypt. You see, in Egypt, this family would be isolated. They would be sequestered. They would be left on their own as a unit, while in Canaan, they would be assimilated. The Canaanites wanted to assimilate with them. In fact, several of these sons were already starting to assimilate with Canaanite wives, and that is exactly what God could not allow to keep happening. And so maybe that's why he brought them down to Egypt. Verse 33, they were seated before him in order by age from the firstborn to the youngest. The men looked at each other in astonishment. Portions were served to them Uh, from Joseph's table, and Benjamin's portion was five times larger than any of theirs. They drank and became drunk with Joseph. 
Now that the brothers showed they were more honest and humble than he remembered, why didn't Joseph just reveal himself? Well, there's still another test he needed to give them. What would they do when their little brother got a bunch of favoritism? You know, 20 years ago, they failed that test in a pretty big way. Would they have the same flare-up of jealousy against Benjamin that they had against Joseph? Important question to settle. For the moment, they were all smiles. In fact, they were getting hammered. Your version may say they made merry with Joseph, but the word used there means drunk or intoxicated. Probably not the best choice. In fact, it was a really stupid thing to do, given the circumstances. Solomon would later warn all of us, Proverbs 23, when you sit down to dine with a ruler, consider carefully what is before you. Put a knife to your throat if you have a big appetite. Uh, So that's good advice still today. But this was part of Joseph's plan to reveal what sort of men they really were. It's been a long time. So what kind of men were they? Meanwhile, this was literally the first happy meal they had ever had together as brothers ever, ever. The brothers certainly weren't perfect, but they were growing on a spiritual level. Alan Ross points out that through this scene, they, the brothers, uh, in different ways, demonstrate responsibility, honesty, unity, faith, humility, gratitude. They make restitution. God's work wasn't done, but they were making progress as they drew, as he drew them on in mercy and grace. We want to make progress too by watching for what the Lord is doing, by getting our fears and our shortcomings and our bad ideas out of the way, and just allowing him to do what he's already been accomplishing in our lives.